U of O President Michael Schill gets a $100,000 bonus despite objections from students and staff. The university has also settled an age discrimination lawsuit. Oregon has only raised about half the $40 million it needs to host the 2021 World Track and Field Championships in Eugene. A clouder of cats in Vanita gets help from animal advocates, and an all-electric plane makes its maiden voyage. These stories and more on this week's Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. everybody. Welcome to this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. And I'm news reporter Brian Bull. It's a historic week with the House Judiciary Committee considering articles of impeachment in Washington, D.C., but that's not the only thing going on. Ani, would you update us on some of the stories we've had on KLCC News this week? Well, speaking of Congress. In October, we heard from Oregon's only congressional Republican, Greg Walden, um, that he will not seek reelection in 2020. He's held that seat for almost 20 years. So now this week, we got news of the latest entrant into the race. Republican Newt Bueller is going to run for the seat. Bueller may sound familiar because he ran for Secretary of State in 2012 against Kate Brown. He lost, and then he got elected to represent Bend, where he practices as a surgeon in the State House in 2014. He served for two terms, and then he ran against Governor Brown in 2018, trying to oust her, and he lost that race too. Bueller has says that he supports gun rights, opposes higher taxes, and sanctuary cities for immigrants. However, when he ran for governor, he also said that he believed in climate change and supported abortion rights and same-sex marriage. So kind of uh, an interesting collection of views. We'll mm-hmm. see where he falls. It's getting it's it's starting to look like a very crowded race. Could be a appeal to the moderate base, I guess. I think that's kind of the idea. It seems like his toughest challenger is going to be Cliff Bentz. Um, and then Jamie McLeod Skinner on the Democrat side has also a lot of name recognition. But again, there's kind of no word yet on, on who's going to emerge as the front runner. So moving west a little bit, um, our own KLCC's Elizabeth Gabriel reported on a, an age discrimination lawsuit that was settled this week. Um, it took two and a half years of litigating. So two U of O professors who worked at U of O Portland filed a lawsuit after the dean of the College of Design tried to move them to the Eugene campus in 2017. Now, both of these men were longtime Portland residents, and it was kind of seen as a way of like, either you move or you got to go. And so they were able to reach the settlement $170,000. And the professors also now have a two-year contract with U of O Portland. And they have the right to sue for breach of contract if the university tries to move them from the Portland campus again in the future. Now, interestingly enough, although a settlement has been reached, the case is actually still ongoing. Hmm. Hmm. And I think the point was made, too, that because of their field of expertise, this wasn't anything they can do like, say, a history professor where they could just pick up and start. This was something that was very community-oriented, and they had to be in that particular location, they, they argued. Exactly. They both presented a lot of evidence of like how kind of ingrained they are in the Portland community. And it's not just like a professor who's been in one place for two years and then goes somewhere else for three years. These are people that have been there. I think each of them had been there for close to 20 years, over 20 years. Um, and so it was. It would have been hard. And they're both over 70. So it would have been hard for them to pick up and move. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
And speaking of the University of Oregon, it's sports ball time. (laughs) In a rematch of the 2012 Rose Bowl, number six Oregon is going to meet number eight Wisconsin at the 106th Rose Bowl on January 1st. This is after the Ducks beat number five Utah last week, and this claimed the Pac-12 championship for them. The Ducks are three to four, three, four. I don't know how to say that. Three and four. Three and four. All time in the Rose Bowl. Yeah. The Ducks are three and four all time in the Rose Bowl. The game will air on ESPN, and I'm sad to say we will not be sending KLCC's love cross down there as much as I'm <laughs> sure she'd love to report on that. We're you break the to... news to her, yes. Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think she wants that sunny vacation. So um, we'll just be watching it on ESPN. Um, I kind of remember the first time that the Ducks went to the Rose Bowl in maybe ever or for a very long time when I was in high school. They ended up playing um, Penn State. The Nittany wow. Lions. That's what it was. You do know your sports ball. I do, I do know a bit of sports ball, only because, you know, it was just a big deal back then. But now they've been so many times, right? It's like yesterday's news. No, I'm just kidding. It's awesome. <laughs> and then also um, more more sports news. This is track this time. Oregon officials, um, we got the information we got the news this week that Oregon officials have only identified about half of the $40 million they've committed to the 2021 World Athletic Championships in Eugene. Now, we've been hearing a lot about that huge event. There is the mural project around town. I'm sure that, you know, as those of you who drive around see that. Um, and this event is going is supposed to bring like 50,000 visitors to Eugene and and on top of that 2,000 athletes. So we're getting a little bit down to the wire because it is 2021 and there's still a lot of money to be raised. And on top of that, for those of you who ever drive around the U of O campus, construction is rapidly underway on the $195 million Hayward Field where most of the events are going to be taking place. And that's kind of the centerpiece, you know, design of the of the event. A lot of cranes and activities and it's the city and the university, I think, just putting the welcome ad out for all the Thousands of people are going to be crushing on Eugene here in the next couple of years. If you enjoy looking at construction, maybe you have a child that likes looking <laughs> at construction. Every we live fairly close to Hayward Field, and every single time I drive by, it's just it's one of those construction projects that it's so there's so many massive pieces of equipment that they're building. It's just it's cool to watch it go up. Mm-hmm. It's massive. It is. Yeah, we can see the we can see those kind of whale rib cage looking things from our house. So it's it's been fun to watch it go up. Well, Brian, this probably segues well into a story you covered this week. And speaking of the University of Oregon, uh, my new story of the week so far involves the Board of Trustees approving a $100,000 bonus for President Mike Schill. Uh, Initially, this amount could have been gone all the way up to $200,000. Trustees argue that they opted for a mid-range amount. Uh, Chair Chuck Lewis cited Schill's leadership, his initiative, and the need to retain him and not be lured away, say, from those Pac-12 schools. Among some of the more notable developments under Schill's watch, I believe he started about five, five and a half years ago, was the largest enrollment yet this fall, uh, as well as major renovation of new construction projects like the uh, billion-dollar night campus for accelerated scientific impact, as well as the uh, upgraded Hayward Field facilities that you just mentioned, Ani. Uh, Several have spoken out against the bonus. Uh, Student trustee Catherine Wishnia, she was absent due to exams, but in a letter that was shared at the meeting, she wrote that she could better address students' needs, including, quote, food insecurity, housing, mental health services, and low-cost parking options. And then a former trustee, uh, Kurt Wilcox, spoke during the public comment period, and he said given the U of O's financial situation, the board could be sending the absolutely wrong message to the campus 
local and wider community by tossing $100,000 at shill for simply meeting quote-unquote performance standards. Wilcox simply asked the trustees about how this bonus would impress on state lawmakers, and for that matter, what are the students who are paying tuition dollars? I just wanted to point out, I mean, the the University of Oregon had to make more than $11 million in cuts last year, mm-hmm. and they've raised both in-state and out-of-state tuition. Yes. So there is a lot of, the optics on this are not great when they're asking for staff and faculty to make cuts, and they're asking for students to pay more to attend the University of Oregon. I I remember uh, opening the paper and seeing a photo of some of the students who were there to talk against the bonus, and there's palatable tension in the room. You can just tell that, again, the optics aren't that great, and some are questioning whether a uh, six-digit bonus if this is the time for that right now. So. And what does the University of Oregon president currently make annually? Mike Schill's salary is currently at $720,000. It's going to go up to 768000 next summer. But as to what he intends to do with the bonus, uh, Schill said this. He said that he intends to create a scholarship in the Pathway Oregon program in the memory of his late father, Simon Schill. He passed away in October, and the amount of the scholarship will be $75,000, which is the same amount for the scholarship that he created and dedicated to the memory of his mother in 2018. And uh, he goes on to talk about how his father was unable to go to college because of the Great Depression, and so he feels that this is a donation that will help support a vital program, opening the door for deserving young Oregonians. So we'll see if that flies or not, but regardless, the uh, bonus has been approved. Well, moving on, the Oregon Department of Transportation started work this week on the Beltline-Delta Highway Interchange in Eugene. This is a place where traffic backs up most weekday afternoons, and the agency says it's working to make the off-ramps more efficient. Here's ODOT engineer Steve Templin. It's a pretty antiquated system up there, especially with the increase of traffic we have now. So we'll be uh, changing that ramp, some of the other ramps. You'll be on a separate alignment that pulls everybody away from the main bridge over if you're just staying on the freeway. It'll help with the operations of that intersection quite a bit. Now, the good news for commuters is that most of the work will be done at night and on weekends, and it shouldn't slow things down more than usual. Um, I also asked Templin about another project in the Eugene area, the reconstruction of the I-105 bridge over the Willamette River. And he said they're doing seismic upgrades right now and it's not affecting traffic. But coming up in February, they'll start work on another part of the bridge, so there will be some lane closures. Now, Templin says the work will take a break during the Olympic track and field trials in June and the Oregon Country Fair and County Fair in July. So there'll be about a month of no construction this summer. And these projects, the goal, going back to the 2021 World Championships, is to have these projects done in time for that. Let's get, let's get cracking, guys. <laughs> Lots of work being done. Yeah, It's a relief to know it's going to be done mostly at night. Yeah, I think that helps a lot. Now, another piece of news this week, um, longtime Eugene City Councilor Betty Taylor made a big announcement on Monday. She's not going to run for another term in 2020. She's been on the council for 23 years. She's the longest serving Eugene City Councilor. And here's a little bit from the start of the work session. You'll hear from Taylor and then Councilor Mike Clark. I want to announce my retirement from council, effective in January of... 2021, approximately 13 months from now. 
The longest serving city councilor did so for 20 years and six months. Betty will have served 24 when she's done by a long shot, by a long shot, given more service to the council than anyone ever has in the history of the city. Well, I see Betty walking around my parents' neighborhood uh, a bit, and she is a spry 94-year-old woman, and I'm happy that she's going to get some time to enjoy retirement, and um, that is an impressive career. And she's got she's got at least one dog, I know, right? Or have you not made your dog guys? So I don't know. That would mm. that would be a question for my mom, actually. She probably yeah. Know. yeah. Shifting from dogs to cats, I have yet another update on the story of nine lives, quite literally. <laughs> uh, we've been covering since August a homestead outside of Vanita, which has been overrun with cats. When I first came there, there were just a couple people, including a few from Save the Pets, who were trying to feed and treat what was thought then to be about 300 or 400 Bye. cats. Good luck. Yes, I know, baby. Uh, but in September, help arrived on the form of Alley Cat Allies, a national group out of Maryland, and the Greeny Hill Humane Society. They teamed up for a policy known as TNR, Trap, Neuter, and Release. And they built shelters and secure feeding stations. And I was given exclusive access to the homestead recently, and I will say that the cats uh, look happier, healthier, and safer than ever. Here's Sasha Elliott of Green Hill explaining some of the new improvements. There's skunks, there's all sorts of critters that will compete for the cat food that we lay out um, twice daily. And so what has been built here is a, a large structure that has um, a roof and tarps over top of it to prevent water from coming in. And the fencing on the sides is specifically designed so that the holes are large enough for the cats to maneuver through safely and comfortably back and forth, but too small for any of the larger wildlife out here to get through. Also, there's 120 cats at best by revised estimates, so about a third to a fourth of what was initially projected. It turns out that cats will not line up for roll call and be counted <laughs> one by one individually. So I guess the uh, exact number on a big clouder <laughs> like this was very hard to get. So that was a very, very overblown estimate at first. So thankfully, it's much smaller. Oh, so it was never three to 400? It was... They, they thought th it was. But. Yeah, they initially thought so, but uh, wow. after some extensive time just working with the cats, I think they've got a much more accurate number. They just splay out. A lot. There's, it's, an, it's an open homestead, so there's a lot of forest and farmland around, so it's very hard for them to be really counted. I, I love that you found the word for a group of cats, cat clowder. Clowder. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so you have a gaggle of geese. You have a herd of, sh of, of moose. Heard a about. murder of crows. A murder, a murder crows. of crows and a clowder of cats. And I just learned this this week, a blessing of unicorns. Ah. You're welcome for <laughs> that random piece of information. That sounds like a Phoebe and her unicorn reference. <laughs> if you ever have a six-year-old daughter who's obsessed with unicorns, you'll learn a lot. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> and 10% uh, of these cats have also been adopted. Here's Rachel Brungart, who works at Green Hill talking about an orange cat named Finn that she took home, who's a Vanita rescue. He doesn't really uh, act like a normal house cat would. He sits like a human. He's like a dog, basically. <laughs> does he nap in the litter box? No, he doesn't, thankfully. He does play in it. If it's clean, he'll, like, jump around in it and kick the litter everywhere, but that's about it. <laughs> and being the good cat mom that Rachel is, Finn now has his own Instagram account, and people can look at him sit or wear a bow tie at their own leisure. <laughs> 
Rachel, you need to you need to get Instagram I know, account for your cat. I know, cat. I know. She's already basically my Instagram. She is. Feed. <laughs> no, I know. She needs her own account now, though, and I want to see her in like princess clothes. <laughs> Unicorn horn. <laughs> totally. They Glasses. make those for cats. Oh, jeez, yeah. exactly. of course they do. <laughs> so anyway, to wrap up, operations are slowing down for the winter, but Green Hill figures that some cats may be socialized enough to be adopted next year. And this venture overall has cost about $20,000 so far. So they are obviously, of course, reaching out for donations and supports as we go, go into the winter months. Thanks, wow. Brian. You are listening to KLCC's Northwest Passage podcast. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. This is the Northwest Passage on KLCC. I'm Rachel McDonald with Brian Bull and Ani Katz. And now it's time for the last thing that we want to mention for the podcast, something from the week's news. So, the Trump 2020 campaign has been having a lot of fun with Photoshop lately. Uh, they've edited videos depicting Hillary Clinton getting knocked over by a golf ball, Trump wrestling a man with the CNN logo for a head, and even President Trump's head on Rocky Balboa's body. But their latest venture may have turned heads for the wrong reasons. There's a new video out that shows Trump as Thanos. Uh, the Marvel Comics Universe supervillain featured in the uh, last two Avengers movies. And it shows footage from the Endgame film. True to the previous Avengers movie, Thanos acquires absolute power with a magical gauntlet, spoiler alert, and with a snap of his fingers causes half of the universe's population to disappear. In this doctored video, Trump Thanos... <laughs> declares his presidency inevitable, that's a reference, I think, to the 2020 uh, election run, and with a snap of his fingers, makes Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, presenting articles of impeachment, disappear, evaporate. Isn't Thanos the bad guy he in the movie? He is the bad guy, which makes this a very curious choice. Also, uh, a, a lot of very uh, devout movie groupies have noted, too, that the footage that they use of Thanos in this particular clip is actually from the movie where just before he actually fails to gain his magical powers because he's been tricked. And then he's pretty much decimated by the Avengers, who in turn also undo his deeds and vanquish his followers. So some of the president's critics, including Jim Starlin, who created Thanos in 1973 for Marvel Comics, uh, remind pop culture buffs that this is a genocidal madman who ultimately fails due to arrogance and incompetence. So... I think the lesson here is that when you pick out pop culture figures to associate with your candidates, it might not hurt to do a little extra research. <laughs> yeah, maybe watch the movie first. Or or at least watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so just to keep on running with this Marvel Comics Universe theme, does that mean that Nancy Pelosi is Captain Marvel and maybe Adam Schiff is Iron Man? I don't know, but <laughs> there's so much crossover potential, isn't there? I mean, every time I look at... Uh, Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio, I think he's going to turn green and grow huge and bust out of his shirt and stomp out of the uh, out of the house chambers. But hey, if he's the Hulk, he doesn't have to wear a suit jacket or even a shirt. So, a, like, problem solved for Jim Jordan. It's a win-win. Right? Yeah. Anyway, it can be argued that for Trump, 
however, that making headlines is the overall strategy, regardless whether it's good, bad, or puzzling. So put that in your confetti, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So I totally get it. I'm just going to out myself as a stereotype. Um, I'm a public radio employee who drinks oat milk and drives an electric car. But for those of us who've gone electric, we're a little obsessed with our cars. So this week was particularly exciting because a fully electric seaplane made its first flight near Vancouver, B.C. Wow. And our reporter, Tom Bonsi, was actually there. Several hundred people crowded the riverbank to witness what they hoped would be an historic moment. They were not disappointed. So we all know air travel is a major source of emissions all over the world. A lot of us can't cut back on our travel. When we go places, sometimes it's because we have to, but it's kind of, you know, you have to do it knowing that you're also causing a little bit of pollution or a lot. This maiden flight earlier this week represents a milestone in the very long process of reducing the aviation industry's emissions, noise, and costs by electrifying short to medium distance commercial flying. Now, it was just a short five-minute flight on a six-passenger plane with just actually one person flying the plane, and it was the CEO of the company. Um, The reason that it was a short flight is because they're still chasing this unicorn in battery-based transportation, and this is also for cars. Um, The batteries need to improve for this technology to replace jet fuel or even car gas. Um, Basically, electric cars and planes will not be able to travel long distances because the range just isn't there yet. So even a Tesla, which has the longest range, you only get like two or 300 miles um, until you need to charge again. So they're kind of chasing this unicorn. They say they're close, but how close? I'm not sure. The power-to-weight ratio of batteries is actually another issue that they're dealing Mm -hmm. with because they are huge batteries, and they have to be able to put them up in the air and fly them. In Cleveland, when I worked there, there was a NASA facility where they were doing a lot of uh, development of um, electric planes and solar power, and one of the big things they were wrestling with is how do you make a battery that is light and yet still sufficient to keep a plane in the air long enough to make any difference to be marketable to the uh, commercial aviation industry. Exactly. And if you think about it, going electric, you know, obviously it will cut down on emissions. But for people that live, you know, kind of in the path of of planes or near an airport, obviously will cut a lot of noise out. and I do remember hearing an interview on NPR a couple of years ago, I think it was from the Detroit Auto Show, where they were also talking about electric cars and saying that there is, like I said, this unicorn that they're chasing of getting these batteries to a, just the right place where it really will make sense for everybody to have an electric car if you don't need to charge it more than every like four or 500 miles. But, um, and I think they said they're within, they feel like they're within five to seven years of that. But, mm. you know, that is that soon enough? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe that would be a form of transportation that teen climate activist Greta Thunberg would take. Um, She famously took a boat from Europe to the United States for the UN Conference on Climate in New York um, because she is strongly trying to reduce her carbon footprint. My last thing this week is that um, 16-year-old Greta Thunberg made Time's Person of the Year for her climate activism. She's the one who's been going on strike um, from school to bring attention to climate change. She's inspired hundreds, thousands of other teens to be climate activists, but she's actually not the only one. I mean, we've got climate activists here in Eugene who are suing the federal government over climate change. 
I think she herself even says, you know, this is not about me. And she said that she was grateful for the honor of Time Person of the Year, but that the honor should be shared with others who are taking action against climate change. And I think in the story that NPR did about her getting this award, that reminded me is that just a year ago, she really was just a teenager skipping school on Fridays, going and protesting out in front of the Swedish parliament. And I remember when NPR first started covering her, and it was this group of students just in Sweden protesting. And a year later, she's the person of the year. Yeah. It's remarkable. She's been attacked and mocked by some people in leadership, including President Donald Trump, who tweeted today, Thursday, this is a quote from President Trump, Greta must work on her anger management problem, then go to a good old-fashioned movie with a friend. Chill, Greta, chill. Now, Thunberg responded. She changed her Twitter profile to read, a teenager working on her anger management problem, currently chilling and watching a good old-fashioned movie with a friend. So she's got a sense of humor. A little clap back there. A little clap back. That's good. Maybe the movie was an inconvenient truth. Possibly. Maybe it was Avengers Endgame. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) That wraps up the Northwest Passage for this week. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. And I'm news reporter Brian Bull. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC.